The civil laws known as Mishpatim were communicated to the Jews. They inspire Talmudic tractates, and rabbinic students devote years to engaging their intricacies. But these laws also changed the world. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 24, Mishpatim and the Merchant of Venice. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis the mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throne monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. So says Portia, the wealthy heiress of Belmont, while disguised as a lawyer in the courts of Venice. The Jew she addresses is Shylock, who has come to claim his pound of flesh from the Gentile merchant Antonio. The implication, of course, in her words, is that Jews care for justice and not for mercy. It is one of the most celebrated speeches about the law. It is also one of the most anti-Semitic statements in the history of English literature and the source of one of the most catastrophic calumnies in the history of the West. Following the dramatic scene at Sinai, Scripture suddenly shifts to what may seem profoundly prosaic, introducing a host of laws that the Israelites are now obligated to obey. For the medieval sage Nachmanides, This is meant to be taken in chronological order. After the declaration of the Decalogue, Moses now delineates the details of the covenant, to which the people enthusiastically assent, giving us words in Exodus 24-7 that echo throughout the ages. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do, and we shall hearken. Only then does Moses ascend Sinai, seeking to secure the two tablets that will embody the bond between Israel and the Almighty. While some of the commandments he articulates here are ritualistic and cultic in nature, most are rules regulating torts, loans, land, sales, and much else relating to the social fabric. What appears prosaic is profound. The Israelites are thereby informed, as commentators note, that the covenant they forge with God will also profoundly impact how they treat their fellow man. These chapters in the annual reading cycle of traditional Judaism are known as mishpatim, laws, the singular of which is mishpat, which also means justice. Its root is shofet, judge, for it is the job of the judge to enforce justice, or, in its infinitive, lishpot. One might therefore suppose, with Portia, that Judaism is all about justice and not mercy, but even a cursory reading of these mishpatim illustrates how profoundly perverse a perspective like this is. Indeed, the passages known as Mishpatim seek to stress Portia's point, millennia before Shakespeare put those words in her mouth, that mercy is an attribute to God himself and earthly power doth then show likest gods, 
when mercy seasons justice. Let us take one example, Exodus twenty-two, twenty-six. If thou take thy neighbor's garment as a pledge, thou shalt restore it unto him by when the sun goeth down. For that is his only covering, it is his garment for his skin, wherein shall he sleep? And it shall come to pass, when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am compassionate. The verse here speaks of a poor borrower who gives his garment as collateral. The lender is obligated to restore the garment in the evening to protect the poor person from the chill. By the standards of strict justice, the law makes no sense at all. Why should a pledge be returned if it was given to ensure payment of a loan and that loan has not yet been repaid? But it is mercy for mishpatim that must be mixed with justice. The late British chief rabbi and biblical commentator J.H. Hertz contrasts this verse with what is known as the Law of the Twelve Tables, one of the surviving copies of early Roman law, composed centuries after Moses. Rabbi Hertz writes of Exodus that, quote, the chivalry to the poor ordained in these verses will appear even more striking when we recall the barbarous treatment of the debtor in ancient Rome. If the debtor was unable to make repayment within 12 days after the expiration of the term agreed upon, the law of the 12 tables permitted the creditor to keep him in chains for 60 days, publicly exposing the debtor and proclaiming his debt. If no person came forward to pay the debt, the creditor might sell him into slavery or put him to death. If there were several creditors, they might cut him to pieces and take their share of the body in proportion to their debt. End quote. We are thus introduced, ladies and gentlemen, to the ultimate irony. Shakespeare's play describes an anti-Semitic merchant of Venice by the name of Antonio, who seeks to borrow money from Shylock on behalf of his friend Bassanio. To this, Shylock replies, You call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and spit upon my Jewish gabardine, and all for use of that which is mine own. Well, then it now appears you need my help. Antonio replies that he plans to continue to abuse Shylock in this way, that he disdains Jews, and he says, I am as like to call thee so again, to spit on thee again, to spurn thee too. If thou wilt lend this money, lend it not as to thy friends, but lend it rather to thine enemy, who if he break, thou mayst with better face exact the penalty. And so Shylock in the play proposes what he calls a merry bond. If Antonio cannot pay, then Shylock can collect from Antonio an equal pound of your fear flesh to be cut off and taken in what part of your body pleaseth me. Antonio's ships do not return, and Shylock comes to court to claim the pound of flesh. That is when Portia gives her speech pleading with the Jew to season justice with mercy. And however the twelve tables of Rome were interpreted in ancient times, I have seen those who have suggested that it also served as inspiration for the play. Meanwhile, there is nothing, nothing in Hebrew scripture that parallels this pound of flesh as payment for debt. On the contrary, it is the Hebrew Bible that introduced the notion of seasoning justice with mercy, all the while also emphasizing the impartiality of justice as an important virtue. Thus, Exodus 23.8. Thou shalt take no bribe, for a bribe blinds them that have sight and perverts the words of the righteous. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, drawing on some of these verses that I've cited, puts his own response to Portia in this way. Quote, Why then is justice so central to Judaism? Because it is impartial. Law, as envisaged by the Torah, makes no distinction between rich and poor, powerful and powerless, homeborn or stranger. Equality before the law is the translation into human terms of equality before God. 
Time and again, the Torah insists that justice is not a human artifact. Fear no one, for judgment belongs to God. Because it belongs to God, it must never be compromised by fear, bribery, or favoritism. It is an inescapable duty and an alienable right. End quote. So, Judaism is about justice, but not only justice. As Rabbi Sachs further puts it, Judaism is, quote, a religion of justice, for without justice, love corrupts. Who would not bend the rules, if he could, to favor those he loves? It is also a religion of compassion, for without compassion, law itself can generate inequity. End quote. Long before Shakespeare, Hebrew scripture proclaimed that mercy is above this sceptered sway, that it is enthroned in the hearts of kings, an attribute to God himself. We are called to make manifest justice and mercy because that is what God does. It is this joining of these attributes that provides the premise for the following striking scriptural exhortation. Exodus 23, 9. And a stranger thou shalt not oppress, for ye know the heart of a stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. The Hebrew word ger, or stranger, refers, for the rabbis, at times to non-descendants of Israel that become converts, and at times to those non-descendants who profess monotheism without full observance. Either way, in an agricultural society where land is tribally assigned, these individuals are economic and cultural outsiders. For Nachmanides, in warning, do not oppress the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt, the Almighty is emphasizing as follows. If you oppress the stranger, the mercy that I showed you in Egypt, I will show to the stranger in the land of Israel. And the justice that I wrought on Egypt, I will in turn wreak upon you. Thus, in this verse, mercy and justice in defense of the stranger are exquisitely combined. This, in turn, brings us to perhaps the most painfully ironic line in The Merchant of Venice. In the play, Shylock invokes the Jewish Sabbath in seeking his pound of flesh. And by our holy Sabbath have I sworn, he says, to have the due and forfeit of my bond. But in fact, for the Torah and for the passages known as Mishpatim, it is the Sabbath that highlights how wrong Shakespeare is in his image of the Jew. Though already declared in the Decalogue, the Sabbath is emphasized again in Mishpatim, but here, in Exodus 23.12, its purpose is specifically stated as, quote, so that the son of thy maidservant and the stranger shall rest. The Sabbath sustains both justice and mercy, for it is a reminder of creation, of man made in God's image, and therefore of human equality. Yeshiva University's Rabbi Tzvi Sabalovsky put it this way, noting that because some in society are much more fortunate than others, therefore, quote, this sense of inequality can lead to the taking advantage of the less fortunate members of society. The message of Shabbos, Sabbath, is the remedy to this misconception. One who truly accepts his role in the world as a creature rather than a creator can never succumb to this error. Our equality with our fellow man derives from our common creator, end quote. The Merchant of Venice, then, provides an utterly unfair picture of Judaism. And when we consider the fact that Shakespeare's genius usually lies, and is probing the depths of human interiority and emotion, then this very problematic play actually inspires us to better see what Shakespeare missed. Shakespeare did not know any Jews, and he was asking himself, while writing Merchant, if I were a Jew who was spat upon constantly by someone like Antonio, what would I be like? For Shakespeare, Shylock is that answer. 
Jews, Shakespeare is assuming, would be filled with a desire for revenge. Shakespeare, having never really met a Jew, takes it for granted that if Jews are treated like animals, then they would become animals. Or in Shylock's words, Thou callest me a dog before thou hadst a cause, but since I am a dog, beware my fangs. Shakespeare's way of thinking profoundly impacts the contextualization of the one recent film version of Merchant that exists, starring Al Pacino. Rather than beginning with Pisanio, as in the original play, the film starts by showing Antonio spitting on Shylock so that we can experience anti-Semitism viscerally, understand how Shylock was treated in the play, understand how Jews were treated throughout life. And of course, Jews were treated this way. Jews were often treated like animals. But, ladies and gentlemen, unlike Shakespeare's imagination, we Jews did not become Shylock. We did not become vengeful animals. And so our question has to be, why did we not become what Shakespeare thought we would be? Why did a man who usually so brilliantly understood human beings so profoundly fail to understand Jews? What did he miss? The answer, I think, can be found in what lies at the heart of the rules and regulations of Mishpatim, and of the Holy Sabbath to which Shakespeare unfairly refers. And that is the biblical notion of the very preciousness of human life. Again, a contrast to the Twelve Tables of the Romans is noteworthy, which instructs Rome to quickly kill a newborn baby that is deemed deformed. For the Bible, life in this world is seen as a sacred mission, one which brings with it inviolability. Every one of us has the capacity for spiritual achievement. That is the foundation for both the equality of justice and the obligation of mercy. We have been charged to live the lives vouchsafed to us in sanctity, righteousness, and love. The very capacity for Jews loving life, cherishing life, embracing life, is founded in this belief. Shylock, like many Jews, was treated like a dog, so Shakespeare assumed that he would act like a dog. The truth, however, was the opposite. In the face of being treated like animals, Our ancestors maintained their belief that life vouchsafed by the Almighty lent us the capacity in our humanity to live lives of radiant sanctity. The Hebrew Bible bequeathed the world the notions of justice and mercy, and yet the calumny of Shylock lives on. In 2011, London's Globe Theatre invited acting troops from 67 countries to come to London and perform a Shakespearean play in their respective tongues. Israel's Habima actors chose the Merchant of Venice. The costumes were Shakespearean, the actors were Jews. Meanwhile, leading British actors and directors publicly demanded the boycott of Israel's troop, even as plays were performed by representatives of despotic tyrannies that rule in violation of the entire moral vision of the Exodus, with nary a murmur from the English cultural elite. The legacy of Shylock endures. The history of anti-Semitism continues. I have read many articles about the Merchant of Venice. They often decry its anti-Semitic aspects and offer insights into Shakespeare's literary technique. But in seeking to counteract Merchant's legacy, we must focus not only on what Shakespeare got wrong, but also on what the Jews got right. And to understand this, we look not to Shakespeare, but to another English Gentile, the historian Paul Johnson, who included in his History of the Jews a paragraph that could also serve as a succinct summary of the passages in the Hebrew Bible known as Mishpatim. Johnson wrote, quote, Certainly the world without the Jews would have been a radically different place. Humanity might have eventually stumbled upon all the Jewish insights, but we cannot be sure. All the great conceptual discoveries of the human intellect 
seem obvious and inescapable once they had been revealed, but it requires a special genius to formulate them for the first time. The Jews, wrote Johnson, had this gift. To them we owe the idea of equality before the law, both divine and human, of the sanctity of life and the dignity of the human person, of the individual conscience and so of personal redemption, of collective conscience and so of social responsibility, of peace as an abstract ideal and love as the foundation of justice, and many other items which constitute the basic moral furniture of the human mind. Without Jews, Johnson concluded, it might have been a much emptier place, end quote. The civil laws known as Mishpatim were communicated to the Jews. They inspire Talmudic tractates, and rabbinic students devote years to engaging their intricacies. But these laws also changed the world. Considering all that the Merchant of Venice has wrought, it is inspiring as we conclude our discussion of these biblical ideas that a non-Jew's history of the Jewish people has also given us one of the most sublime and succinct statements of their significance that I have ever seen. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.